Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the Ganatantra podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Alok Prasanakumar. I'm delighted to welcome some of our old listeners on IBM. We are now on a new platform, which is the New Book Net- New Books Network. And also welcome to our new listeners on this platform. We hope to bring to you a series of discussions on this podcast about books covering law, policy, politics, generally in the Indian region, but also the general South Asian region. And all as always, co-host Saryu Natarajan. Hi. And welcome once again to this podcast. And on today's episode, we are joined by Rohan Alva. Rohan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, Alok. Thank you so much. And But before we begin, a very quick introduction to Rohan. And we're talking to Rohan about his book, Liberty After Freedom. Uh, Rohan is a counsel practicing in the Supreme Court of India. He earned his LLM from the Harvard Law School, where he focused on constitutional law, which he read for on numerous scholarships, including as a Tata scholar and on the Harvard Law School scholarship. He holds a BA in history from Loyola College, University of Madras, and an LLB from the Campus Law Center, University of Delhi, where he was the editor of the Delhi Law Review. Rohan, before we begin, let me just say I really enjoyed reading Liberty After Freedom because it provides a very fresh perspective on perhaps one of the most controversial, not controversial, but one of the most heated debates in the Constituent Assembly of India regarding Article 21 of the Constitution. For those of you who are not very familiar with the Indian Constitution, Article 21 guarantees the right to life and liberty, specifically stating that the right to life and liberty shall, no one should lose their life, right to life or liberty without the procedure established by law. So Rohan, perhaps if you could begin by telling us what inspired you as a lawyer to look at, to dig deep into the history of this provision to give us this perspective about Article 21. Uh, firstly, thank you so much for having me and a pleasure to be here. Uh, this book really was started out as trying to understand uh, what exactly happened at the time at which the Indian constitution was founded and what were the issues at play when these women and men assembled to shape India's founding document. The reason Article 21 is so important today is because, as everyone knows, in the past few years, that's become the basis for several important and new fundamental rights uh, which have been implemented and recognized. And they've really entered public discussion, public consciousness, and really the public sphere. So a normal, uh, ordinary citizen is now engaging with the Constitution at a very deep level. And that was one reason that sort of gave me the inspiration to try and understand that if this right today is so important, if it's discussed so widely, if it's become the basis for these new and important fundamental rights uh, to be recognized, there must be something in its history that either tells us the direction in which we are going, either either teaches us something about the direction in which we are going, or perhaps it sheds light on some of the controversies that arose and the lessons that we can draw from it. So that was one reason. The second reason was that 
ever since I entered law school, in fact, the first thing I think everyone will agree with me, any law student is first told that the most important fundamental right is Article 21. It's become the basis of several path-breaking judgments is recognized all over the world. It's an inspiration for many constitutional courts across the world who draw very important lessons from it. And that's where, that's when I actually started thinking about it, that if this right is so important, uh, surely there must be something about its history, about its evolution, about its trajectory, uh, which is interesting. And we were sort of told one story, one standard story was often narrated, as I've also said in the book. It was a very simple story that was told. We were told that the, the Constituent Assembly came together. Uh, they looked to the American Constitution and they saw this provision contained in what is called the 14th Amendment, which has a right, which guarantees that no person will be deprived of their life, liberty or property, except according to due process of law. That provision had proved very controversial, so the Assembly wanted to avoid the same from happening in India. So they then looked to the Japanese constitution, which had just been created a few years ago. And from there, they drew inspiration and ultimately, by an amalgam, created what would ultimately be known as Article 21 of the constitution, the right to life and personal liberty. But to me, it seemed a very simple story. To me, it seemed something that didn't really capture its essence. It didn't really capture its full history. Uh, so that was another reason why I really wanted to go into it and step by step try and piece together and understand from beginning to the end. Essentially, I focus on 1946 to 1950 to draw a picture about what exactly happened in the assembly and the various stages, what are the discussions at various stages and how did Article 21 ultimately come to be a part of the constitution. That's, that's actually a fascinating story because... Um, I also write this column every once in a month on the Constituent Assembly. And the more I read it for you know, something that I'm writing, I, I, I read a short kind of explainer column. I find that the Assembly debates are perhaps some of the most interesting documents that you can read. Not just as somebody studying the law or the Constitution, but if you want a good historical perspective of where India was. And let's, this, this period of 46 to 50, perhaps you can take some time to break it down a little bit as to what happened. Um, this is the trajectory that maybe you could discuss the main, which is the main thesis of your book, perhaps you could discuss a little bit. 46, everybody is gung-ho about having a due process clause in the constitution of India. But in 1950, when the constitution comes into effect, we just find procedure established by law. In the middle, we have this furious debate which takes place in the Constituent Assembly where members are genuinely upset. You can just read the speeches and you can see how angry they are that the terms of Article 21 is not due process of law as they had imagined. So maybe take us a bit very briefly through the trajectory as you have plotted in your book as to how India, India's constitution went from one state to the other. Okay, so I think I'll just give a brief background before I sort of uh, get into it. The due process guarantee, as it is called, is really a representation of a universal principle uh, that was demanded throughout the nationalist movement in the 1800s and the 1900s. Of course, the language and the form was different. But the essential principle, the essence of it was that there are certain rights which are inviolable, that they ought not to be taken away, and that there is no reason which justifies 
certain rights from being taken away unless and until an exceptionally compelling reason is established by the state. So it just can't be that the state pre presents a proffered justification and on that ground, a right is taken away. That was the general principle which finds its voice, which finds its shape in what is called a due process guarantee. So what due process essentially entails is that there are certain fundamental requirements which an individual uh, must have, which which require that the individual exercise certain rights in society and the state cannot take them away. That's in, in a very short and simple manner what the due process guarantee entails. It has been it has been given shape in different versions. So as I just said, the American constitution has given it in a shape as applying it to life, liberty and property, which cannot be taken away without due process of law. When the constituent assembly met in 1946, there was an objectives resolution that had been presented and the objectives resolution contains certain important rights that should be given shape to by the constituent assembly. Now, very interestingly, Dr. Ambedkar was one of the speakers who replied, who gave a long and very interesting speech in response to the objectives resolution. And the first thing that he pointed out is that we must, at, at whatever manner at which we frame the constitution, all rights must be protected by what he called the due process guarantee. So what he really said was that I'm surprised that there is no mention of life, liberty, and property being uh, protected by the due process guarantee. And what he really meant was that when the constituent assembly actually gets down to the nitty gritty of it, due process must really find a place of high importance in the assembly's agenda. Now, as things happened by about 1946 to 1947 is what I call the first stage of constitutional drafting. Because what happened was that a decision was taken that certain parts of the constitution uh, should be examined and analyzed by certain expert committees. So there was an advisory committee that had been framed and that advisory committee in turn framed a subcommittee on fundamental rights. Now, the subcommittee of fundamental rights had a galaxy of some of the greatest minds India has ever produced, K.M. Munchi, Dr. Ambedkar, Aladi Krishna Swamiyayar, and they all took time and applied their minds to the general question of how fundamental rights must be given shape and to the specific question of whether the constitution should contain a due process guarantee. Now, the language and the substance and the contents of it could be debated, but they had to, in principle, agree that the due process guarantee must be a part of the constitution. Ultimately, they all agreed, and they made that recommendation in turn to the advisory committee. Now, in the advisory committee is what I call in my book, the Indian innovation. Because the advisory committee, which was headed by Sardar Patel, and he played an important role in how due process guarantee would shape up, had to deal with two competing interests. On the one hand was this was the continuation of the nationalist demand from the 1800s and 1900s that life and liberty must not uh, be affected by any law and they should be protected by the due process guarantee. So there has to be a very high threshold that the state crosses before life and liberty was affected. But the competing interest was that land reform was to be undertaken in free India, which was essentially dismantling the zamindari system of land tenure and attaining equality in land holding. So they looked at the American constitution and said that if you apply due process protection for property rights, and here 
property rights only meant land redistribution, agrarian reform. It didn't mean broader property rights. It only meant land reform. If due process protection is applied to property rights, then the attainment of land equal, equality in land holding will be a difficult task. And this was a learned experience from the US Constitution. So K.M. Panikar and Sadar Patel ultimately were able to convince the advisory committee that you have to segregate the due process guarantee. One part has to protect life and liberty alone, and a separate right should be created which applies to property rights so that property rights does not stand in the way of attaining equality in land holding, but by lowering the bar to attain property equality in land holding, life and liberty must not also suffer. So the ultimate solution that was arrived at was to segregate the two. So the Indian innovation was life and liberty, and liberty means in its broadest, most expansive sense, will be protected by the due process guarantee, but property rights may be subject matter of a slightly lesser level of protection. Given the goal of attaining, dismantling the zamindari system, land tenure, and given India's specific goal in achieving equality in land holding. So this was the Indian innovation. Now, very interestingly, in the advisory committee itself, there was this very intense debate between G.B. Panth on the one hand and Aladi Krishnaswamy on the other. And the argument was that if life and liberty itself is protected by the due process guarantee, so in times when the state requires a stronger hand to deal with certain particular situations, uh, it may become impossible to deal with them because of the due process guarantee itself. Now, the reply was a very interesting reply, and this is how it sort of correlates to our present understanding of uh, certain issues developing. The argument was that there are one of two things that can be done. Either life and liberty is not protected at all, which means fundamental rights will merely be some sort of will be a chapter in the constitution, which will not really have any force when it comes to citizens protecting the rights or life and liberty is protected, but life and liberty has to be protected in the most fundamental and in the strongest manner. And ultimately, the advisory committee came to the conclusion there was a vote, and they ultimately concluded that the best way to protect life and liberty is to confer due process protection on them. And what it means is that whatever an individual conceives as important for their life or liberty should not really be affected by the ordinary lawmaking powers of the state. A very high threshold is set. There has to be an exceptionally compelling reason which justifies either a restriction on this right or some sort of limitation on it. It just can't be routine regulation which affects life and liberty. And that's the ultimate conclusion that the advisory committee came to. Now, that's one part of it. As 1946 rolled into 1947, in April, there was a vote on this recommendation because what the advisory committee had done is that they came up with an report on fundamental rights and they had a catalog of fundamental rights each one of them had been a result of careful and intense deliberation and in that there was this provision on life and liberty being protected protected by the due process guarantee when it was voted on the floor of the assembly there was universal and unanimous acceptance and on the 30th of april 1947 the assembly voted in favor of the due process guarantee so ultimately, as I showed in the first part, if I were to break it into parts, the historical uh, narrative of Article 21, 1946 
to 1947 is really the zenith. It's the highest point that the assembly reaches, where life and liberty is really given a level of protection which it merits. It's given a very high level of protection and is really given the protection of what is called due process protection, where a high threshold is set before the state can really affect this particular fundamental right. The second lesson is that there was an Indian innovation in it. So life and liberty was taken and given due process protection and property rights was given a separate level of protection. And I narrate the history of property rights also and an inversion that takes place ultimately in 1950. But in 1946, at least it appeared that life and liberty would be given a high level of protection and not for property rights. So in that way, the advisory committee was able to balance state interests along with the need for protecting individual rights. And finally, this proposal was voted on and accepted by everyone in the assembly. So there was no dispute on the fact that as the constitution develops and in the later stages, life and liberty has to be given the highest level of protection. So this is between 1946 and the 30th of April, 1947. But we find that this changes, right? We find, Rohan, that actually the change, and the key for this change seems to be the American experience. And I think we have the constitutional advisor, Sir Benegal Narsingh Rao, who travels to the United States, uh, wows constitutional experts there. And the traditional narrative has been that he was the one who sort of came back with the view that the American experience suggests that not just for property, but also for life and personal liberty, and life and liberty, perhaps we need to rethink this key word, due process. Due process. And instead, we find that word imported from the Japanese constitution, the phrase imported from the Japanese constitution, finds its way. So perhaps the next stage of the evolution of Article 21, perhaps you could take us through what, what, was, what, what, what yeah. was actually discussed in the Constituent yeah. Assembly uh, and what, what, why was this change received so badly at the end of the day? So the second stage, as you rightly said, is, is from October 1947 till about the beginning of 1948. Now, something very interesting happened before October 1947 in August. So after India attained independence, there was a British Parliament legislation called the Indian Independence Act. And under the Indian Independence Act, there was a separate provision dealing with the Constituent Assembly of India. Now, that after the Indian Independence Act came into force and after India attained independence, the Assembly decided to change the way in which it was going to draft the constitution. So prior to that, so from this 1946 till about the middle of 1947, committees were framed which would look at several parts of the constitution. So there was an advisory committee which looked at fundamental rights. Then there was a committee which looked at directive principles. There was a committee which looked at the structure of the union, the federal division of power, etc. And that became a very laborious process, a long-run process. So the decision was taken in August 1947 that we will ask the constitutional advisor, B.N. Rao, to frame a draft constitution, sort of, sort of just put in a document all the articles that he thinks are relevant, which we must debate. And then the assembly will undertake a clause-wise deliberation. So his document really shortened the time that the assembly took because he was tasked with the responsibility in August 47 and he prepared the draft constitution in October 47. So he worked very rapidly and he came up with a detailed constitution in which there was a chapter on fundamental rights. Now in that chapter on fundamental rights, 
bn rao as i try and show in as i show in the book has been singled out as the person who is responsible for article 21's language that's the traditional narrative i in the book i dispute this narrative and i say that it's partly not true if not entire it's it's in my view it's not true at all for several reasons the first is that he prepared a draft constitution in october of 1947 now what he did in that constitution was that he took forward the assembly's decision on due process rights but he made one important change instead of due process protection applying to life and liberty in his draft constitution it applied to life and personal liberty now in today in article 21 we find the phrase personal liberty we don't find the word liberty liberty is present in the american constitution but in india it is personal liberty now two things are very important here from the perspective of an ordinary citizen to understand for him to for them to understand uh, article 21 history the first is that the phrase due process was present in rao's draft constitution so obviously he didn't do away with it now the reason he chose personal liberty as you rightly pointed out was to prevent india from going down the same controversial path that the united states had gone down in its experience with the due process guarantee and the experience that the american constitution had had was that the word liberty was so widely uh, understood that it essentially prevented the state from making any law to achieve any social welfare goal or any social welfare uh, project because something or the others uh, relating to the achievement of a social or an economic uh, progress would affect a person's liberty in, when it when it's understood in its broadest most expansive sense so rao thought if the phrase personal liberty is used we will narrow the scope of operation so it won't be a widely understood right it will have some limitations but he still used the due process guarantee now the story which everyone knows i think and which is very interesting to anyone is that he then travels to the united states he meets a large number of dignitaries he meets justice felix frankfurter and felix frankfurter famously made a remark that if i were asked to nominate a judge to the us supreme court based on their understanding of the american constitution bn rao would be first on my list that's the kind of uh, knowledge he had of the american constitution now apparently we are told that justice frankfurter told bn rao listen do away with this due process guarantee it's created a lot of trouble in america because what it does is that it stops the state from achieving several important goals and it burdens the judiciary because it requires the judiciary to enter the field of uh, policies and determine which policy is good or bad so it's better to avoid this entire problem and just do away with the due process guarantee and the narrative that has sort of been passed down through the ages is that that count advice is what ultimately led to article 21 but as i show in the book something else happened entirely after he met justice frankfurter rao in fact advised the the constituent assembly that they must make an innovation in their constitution to protect the right of the state to achieve social and economic welfare and the solution that he arrived at was to place directive principles above all fundamental rights so that when the state makes a law in to implement a directive principle as we know which is a social welfare or an economic welfare goal fundamental rights must not stand in the way now very interestingly this prediction proved 
true in 1973 and became the basis of the Keshavananda Bharati decision because that is exactly what was contained in Article 31C. The directive principles are above fundamental rights, which was therefore uh, judicial review of those laws was therefore prevented. It was in one way giving effect to this recommendation of Rao. But Rao's recommendation still remained of retaining the due process guarantee. So what did Rao ultimately therefore achieve? He tried to achieve three things. On the first thing that he tried to achieve was that a balance has to be maintained between fundamental rights and social and economic progress. So therefore, his solution was laws dealing with social and economic progress, or in other words, a directive principle are superior to fundamental rights. Even if they violate the fundamental rights, the directive principle prevails and not the fundamental right. The second point was that he still retained due process as a right in the constitution, which meant that due process guarantees would apply in his uh, vision to any law which did not deal with a social or an economic welfare goal. So anything that did not deal with a directive principle would could be reviewed directly under the due process guarantee. And finally, what he recommended, and this is, as I say in the book, this is his prediction, and this is exactly what the court would ultimately do in 1978 in Menaka Gandhi's case, is that he said that fundamental rights must be used to transform an individual's position in society, but land reform must not receive due process protection. So again, his idea was personal liberty receives due process protection, directive principles should be superior to fundamental rights and therefore we avoid the American experience where the due process guarantee was used to strike down several laws dealing with social welfare, particularly during the Great Depression and the New Deal. And finally, his recommendation was that do not confer any strong protection on property rights. So this was really what Rao recommended, rather than him just saying that obliterate due process guarantees entirely from fundamental rights, they are meaningless. That's really not the case. And that's what I show in the book, that his solution was uh, multi-tiered as well as minutely detailed to deal with the unique challenges that the due process guarantee had raised, uh, not only in America, but across the world. And this is interesting because in one sense, uh, constitutions in any country come in a particular context. And this is, I think, suppose the two important context which we need to lay out to understand Article 21 before we move ahead for the last thing. One is that in this period of 1947, we see the horrors of partition. Right. right. We have seen the fact that perhaps even Second World War did not see this, maybe the, nobody knows the final casualty figures, but perhaps one of the largest bloodletting this country has ever seen over the short period of time. And there's complete breakdown of law and order. Uh, in fact, there is uh, even a part in the Constituent Assembly debates where one of the members says, can we wrap up proceedings a little earlier because it's becoming harder and harder to get a curfew pass to go home, especially for our, uh, for, for our staff, because Delhi was still in the middle of partition riots. Delhi was still seeing an influx of refugees. There's a serious law, not a problem. At least the official machinery in the Constituent Assembly, let's represented by Jawaharlal Nehru and the Congress uh, were perhaps seriously rethinking uh, maybe our commitment to fundamental rights is being tested here. That's one. The second context, and I suppose this is something perhaps uh, some of the listeners might need to understand, is that the British introduced a system of land revenue in India where 
land was not necessarily owned by the person who tilled it. Land was owned in large parts by these large landholders for whom somebody else worked and land revenue was collected from them. So this created a grossly unequal society in addition to caste and so on. And I think one of the long-standing demands of the for freedom movement was this land reform. It wasn't just political freedom, right? It was also economic freedom for a lot of uh, India's tillers. So keeping these two contexts in mind, perhaps we can discuss the next stage, which actually was when that draft was put to vote, the new uh, draft Article 21 was put to vote. What happened next? Okay. So as I just said, the, these proposals of BN Rao were actually sent by an air letter by BN Rao from Washington, D.C. to the Constituent Assembly, in which he proposed that these are the three suggestions that I have so that these changes may be made in the Constitution and the due process guarantee may be modified accordingly. That's basically his uh, recommendation in this air letter. Now, after get, receiving Rao's draft constitution, the drafting committee took over. Now, the drafting committee was an expert committee created by the Assembly, which would be chaired by Dr. Ambedkar. And the drafting committee's task was now to go over Rao's draft constitution and then prepare a draft constitution, which would ultimately then be debated in the assembly. So Rao made a draft constitution. In turn, that constitution went to the drafting committee, which was a seven-member drafting committee. They would have a look at the draft constitution, make changes to it. And then finally, that draft constitution would go to the assembly and all the members would have a chance of giving in their, uh, their suggestions for improvement. Now, before this happened, there was one question which many in the assembly had. They said that now if we are creating this expert committee, such as the drafting committee, to look over the constitution, what would become of our past decisions? So as I said, what would become of the decision of uh, the constituent assembly when it voted on fundamental on the fundamental right to life and liberty? Now, there's a very long speech given by Aladi Krishnaswamy here, who's also a member of the drafting committee, where he says that the remit of the drafting committee is very narrow. What we ultimately need to do is that the drafting committee has to give effect to the vote that the assembly has already taken on certain aspects. So fundamental rights would be one aspect. And because the drafting committee is really going to be something that is looking over the past decisions, any decision to depart from this vote, so let's assume the right to life and liberty, which was voted on overwhelmingly and universally, if the drafting committee wishes to depart from it, they have to give some reasons, strong reasons justifying that departure. Otherwise, we have to follow the decision. And the reason was that these decisions were arrived at after great deliberation, after great discussion, and therefore the, some value had to be attached to these decisions of the assembly. Now, what happens is that as the drafting committee begins to look at the constitution, at first, it appears that the due process guarantee is going to make its way into the draft constitution of the drafting committee. That's what it appears because the minutes of the drafting committee, and I looked at the entire whatever available records there are of the drafting committee's meetings. They met several hundreds of times and each time they met, they were alive to the fact that the due process guarantee as recommended by BN Rao will ultimately be a part of the draft constitution. So there was no difficulty with having a due process guarantee. What seemed to have been a point of discussion in the constituent assembly, in the drafting committee was 
whether the word liberty should be used. So whether should it be life and liberty or whether it should be life and personal liberty. Now, the reason they had this discussion is because personal liberty, although it might appear to be an innocuous addition, like a prefix, personal liberty, really was a departure from the Assembly's vote of April 30th, 1947, because there they had used the expansively understood word liberty. So although this one word was prefixed personally, it really transformed the meaning of the due process guarantee, it really changed its very conception and understanding. So therefore, the point of discussion was, is it better to use liberty or is it better to use personal liberty? And this was along with the fact that the drafting committee, like B.N. Rao and his draft constitution, were trying to wrestle with the idea as to how we must respect the state's need to attain social and economic progress and welfare, which is nothing but directive principles of state policy. The first thing that happened is that Rao's recommendation to place directive principle above fundamental rights is rejected. So they don't agree with it. So as far as a drafting committee is concerned, ultimately fundamental rights will prevail. The second decision that they take is that we will use the phrase personal liberty because in our view, personal liberty is a phrase which will ensure that laws dealing with social welfare, something tracking Rao's reasoning and logic, will not really come in the way of the due process guarantee as such because personal liberty is a slightly limited uh, and uh, narrower understanding than the word liberty. So they thought that personal liberty will really, uh, will really meet the ends of having a fundamental right as well as achieving social and economic progress. This seems to be something that the drafting committee agreed on. But when the constitution was ultimately presented, there was a new right altogether in the drafting committee's draft. And that article is identical to the article which we have in present day Article 21. At that time, it had two. It had the fundamental right to equality also as a part of it, which was ultimately separated. And the equality right became what we know today as Article 14. But at that time, this draft Article 15, as it was known as, it would be known right up till 1950, had a completely new avatar, as it were, of a right relating to life and liberty. And what it recited was that life and liberty uh, is protected ex is to be protected except according to procedure established by law so that no person's life and liberty can be taken away so as you just pointed out at the beginning of the of this uh, podcast that that's the language in article 21 today now i find that as far as the drafting committee was concerned this seemed to be something that was really far removed from their understanding of what the due process guarantee would mean and when the drafting committee presented the draft constitution in November 1948, members could not believe that the due process guarantee would, uh, to put it mildly, they just couldn't believe that the drafting committee had eliminated the due process guarantee altogether. And at that time, there was a very spirited discussion about this. And the point of discussion was that if the drafting committee has to give effect to the assembly's past decisions, there has to be some important reason why the drafting committee has done away with due process guarantees in its entirety. And I must say, when they did it, did away with it, they did away with it completely. There was no, there's not even a whisper of due process protection applying to life and liberty. Now, whatever may have been at play 
in the minds of the members of the drafting committee, the official reason was this. And this is the official reason, which is a footnote in the draft constitution. And as I say, history was undone through this footnote. The footnote says that there is a new constitution in Japan. And there is a particular article in the Japanese constitution, which uses this phrase, except according to procedure established by law. We as the drafting committee are inspired by it for two reasons. Firstly, the Japanese constitution has been framed under American guidance and supervision after the end of the Second World War. Now, if Americans have drafted a new constitution and they have not used language similar or identical to the due process guarantee, it is obviously because they are trying to avoid the American experience from taking root in Japan. So we will take a lesson not from the American constitution, but from the Japanese constitution and replicate that provision into Article 21. Now, as soon as, so this was the official reason as it were, and ultimately this became in the draft constitution, the sole basis for the drafting committee to undo the assembly's past decision and ultimately frame a right, which at that time appeared to many as just being a meaningless right. Because what did it mean? If you can take away someone's life and liberty just by procedure established by law, it only means you need to make a law to that effect. Once a law is made, there is no question of any person, any court reviewing it, questioning whether the reasons are just proper, if there's any compelling reason, none of that uh, becomes relevant to any inquiry when a law affects life and liberty. And that really then rolls into the third phase of the due process guarantee when in 1948, in December 1948, it's taken up for discussion. And this point is raised by numerous members who cannot uh, fathom the fact that in this new constitution, there is a complete inversion where we started with due process protection for life and liberty and now reach a phrase uh, where it really in in the ultimate analysis has no protection whatsoever as far as the constitution is concerned. And I think that uh, that is perhaps, I mean, we can't really summarize that discussion, but uh, it is it is quite worth reading. And I would urge all our listeners, and we'll provide links in the podcast description, to please read those debates to understand the depth of feeling behind this. Just one point uh, I sort of want to ask Rohan about in this context, one thing that occurred to me while one reading your book and independently reading the debates itself is Dr. Ambedkar's ambivalence about this. Now, Dr. Ambedkar usually has a passionate point of view with most articles in the constitution. Either he defends them or he says, yeah, we think if something could change, please give us suggestions or we have done this for this reason and for that reason. But for this particular article, he's entirely ambivalent. He's like, look, this is what we did. Up to you guys. If you want it, don't want right, it. Right, right. I don't care. Which, which to me strikes a very discordant tone. He's a passionate debater. In, in at one point, he has this furious back and forth with K M Munshi about freedom of uh, about the personal liberty and so on. But is there any reason? Was there something that you uncovered why Dr. Ambedkar was neither willing to back this province, despite being the chairperson of the drafting committee, was either unwilling to entirely back it? or to sort of entirely distance himself from it. Uh, so, the, so one of the things that struck me, and that's why I pointed out that Dr. Ambedkar, when the assembly convened in 1946, was the person who first alerted the assembly to the importance of the due process guarantee. In fact, when he was a member of the advisory committee, he drew up a, 
draft of fundamental rights in which there was a due process guarantee. It's one of the most detailed documents, I think, drawn up by a single person, which is detailed and which covers fundamental rights in all its essence. So he was the person who was really backing the due process guarantee. He was the person who in the advisory committee was giving a middle path between the two extremes that people wanted to adopt. So strong protection due for life, liberty, property, as opposed to uh, a lower level of protection for life, liberty, and property. So he was also supporting the middle path where life, liberty is treated uh, at a slightly higher level of importance as opposed to property rights. Finally, he was also in the, in the drafting committee and in the minutes, as I just said, in the meetings that they had, there seemed to be... Uh, there was no discontent as it were over the phrase due process. It was only about whether personal liberty should be accepted or not. So in that sense, it's discordant as you rightly point out. The second thing that, so, uh, that struck me was that in the debates, a completely different set of individuals took up the mantle to protect due process protection. And that's something I think uh, many will find interesting that those who were most vociferous about protecting life, liberty, and property, by the time 1948 arrived, December 1948 arrived, when the Constituent Assembly debated the Arctic fundamental right on life and liberty, those who had been its ardent supporters now somehow became its strongest opponents. And person in point here is Aladi Krishnaswamy Iyer. In fact, there are several... Uh, pages dedicated in the Constituent Assembly debates as to the passionate speeches that he had given, both generally on the importance of fundamental rights and specifically on the importance of a constitution containing a due process guarantee. And as I say, something turned in the Constituent Assembly's mind by the time they debated the article. And in my view, in my view it is this. Between 46 and 47, the focus had been on protecting individual freedoms and cataloging them as rights. So as Sardar Patel points out, there were three reasons which inspired the advisory committee to do this. That the constitution must firstly enumerate them so that the citizen knows the rights that they have. They must be enforceable by several means, including uh, by the right to move the Supreme Court directly. And the third is that the rights themselves must indicate as to the circumstances in which the state can limit them. There shouldn't be this open invitation to limit them as and when the state feels. It has to be very specifically and clearly defined. That seemed to have been the methodology at play between 46 and 47. By the time we reach 48, a completely different concern takes over. And the concern that takes over is that several of us in the assembly have first-hand knowledge of how traumatic and brutal it can be when we are deprived of all rights when we come into contact with the criminal justice system. And if it is going to be a continuation of this old regime, then perhaps the fundamental rights will insufficiently realize the vision of transforming uh, a citizen's right to enforce a set of guarantees and rights. That seemed to have been the main concern in December 1948. It was no longer about the American constitution and balancing directive principles. The priorities changed completely. And now the question was, is it possible for a constitution to create a set of rights 
by which a citizen will not have any entitlements when they come into contact with the justice system. So basic things like the right to be told of the crime they are charged with, the right to access, uh, have access to a lawyer of their choice, the right to defend themselves in a neutral court, the right to have uh, right to con uh, right to have access to statement made by witnesses, the right to present a defense against a charge. Is it possible for a constitution to even deny these basic freedoms? So the debate transformed entirely by the time it reached the constituent assembly. The second thing, and this is a very interesting thing, that within the debates, there were mini debates itself. So there was a mini debate uh, between K.M. Munshi, who was the strongest and most vocal supporter of due process rights and between Aladi Krishnaswamy Iyer. Now they, Aladi Krishnaswamy Iyer and K. Munshi clashed on the, on the point as to whether a due process right will affect democracy or not. And the basic idea was that if a person uses fundamental rights and uses that right to question a law made by the state, it affects the democratic process in its entirety because you are now questioning legislative will of the people's will. Now, K. Munshi and Aladi Krishnaswamy Iyer sort of use the same reasons to both support as well as attack the due process, right? So according to K. Munshi, due process actually ennobled democracy. It strengthened it because what it did was that it empowered an individual to enter the system after having cast their vote and question how the state acts. But according to Aladi Krishnaswamy here, if a citizen entered the system and questioned how the state acted after they had cast their votes, that would encumber the democratic process itself. And finally and ultimately, the assembly decided in December 1948 to vote on an article like present-day Article 21. That is, a, life, a right to life and personal liberty could be uh, taken away after a law to that effect was made. So it could not be taken away except according to procedure established by law. Now, the reason why the transformation is important is because it's very relevant. It directly leads to what happened immediately after that. And that's, I think, the third phase of the due process evolution in the Constituent Assembly. Because once the Assembly voted, and this is important, once they voted on draft Article 15, as it was known, which would become Article 21, and they voted on a fundamental right which could be taken away by an established law, all of a sudden, everyone was very uh, sort of paying close attention to the fact that now there was a constitution which did not protect life and liberty at all. And that would spur a national debate, it would spur a massive debate in the assembly, and it would now influence the drafting committee to make a sort of compensation of sorts, as it would be called, to somehow introduce in the constitution some level of due process rights because of Article 21 itself. And therefore, uh, quite uh, strangely, it is Article 21 which ultimately spurred the assembly as well as the drafting committee to take a re-look at due process rights and come up with some strong protection for an individual when they came into contact uh, with the criminal justice system. Right. Uh, thank you so much for that, Rohan. I, it's been illuminating, but 
I would love to sort of uh, bring you to the present and invite you to sort of think about Article 21 a little bit in the current context. I mean, at least as I've seen it and from your book and this conversation as well, it seems like there's a little bit of a paradox, right, in that it uh, personally, but even in its limited form, sort of allows the court to bring in a variety of things within Article right. 21. And there's been an expansive interpretation of it. And on the other hand, uh, you know, there have been several privations visited on notions of due process or procedure established by law. Um, and particularly in these current contexts with the rise of sort of globally a rise of authoritarianism, um, as well as the rise of nationalism in a certain way. What becomes of Article 21 and its politics in the current times? Um, oh, you know, that's and, yeah. very relevant. Uh, and that's as Alok had pointed out, history will throw a lot of light in the present controversies that we are sort of passing through because what played out in 1948 is exactly what we're going through. So just to sort of complete the story before I link it to uh, the present is that because of the absence of due process guarantee, suddenly there was a there was a need that the drafting committee felt that attention has to be paid to craft certain fundamental rights which will protect an individual. And that is how ultimately Article 22 came to be. Because Article 22, which which gives basic rights like access to a lawyer, to be informed of the charge, to be presented to a magistrate within 24 hours of arrest, certain safeguards when in the case of preventive detention, were a direct consequence of the constituent assembly of disavowing due process as it were in 48. So this compensation actually came a year later, nearly a year later in September 49. Now what I find is that even if you just look at our jurisprudence in the last one year, we have three different voices speaking on due process itself. So one I would say is the PMLA judgment as it's been discussed uh, quite in quite detail. Many people have written on it. And that judgment essentially takes the position that a person does not have access even to the basic complaint that becomes the basis of the investigation. There is a reversal of the burden of proof, a reversal of the presumption of innocence. Uh, and thankfully, now the Supreme Court is going to review that part of the judgment uh, on the review petitions that have been filed. But these concerns were exactly what the Constituent Assembly wanted to uh, deal with and ensure that they didn't occur in free India and wanted to ensure that they didn't occur by providing something akin to due process rights in the constitution. That's the first. But the second is that in the recent, that in around the same time, there are two other important decisions. One had to do with a very important decision on how bail must be liberalized. And another decision recently, which dealt with the Benami Act. Again, a shot in the arm for due process, right? Because substantive due process and manifest arbitrariness, substantive due process really was reiterated and reaffirmed by the Supreme Court as an important component of fundamental rights, which allows the court to review a law which may injuriously affect a fundamental right by presenting a justification that a higher interest has to be achieved. And it's very interesting because all the historical controversies that Article 21 and uh, sort of went through become very relevant today. So, and I'll just give you a few of them. The first is that what benefit does the constitution derive from the fact when it does not confer due process protection on life and liberty, as opposed to uh, as opposed to a constitution which gives it a sort of a low level of protection? Is there any benefit that the constitution derives by not conferring it? 
that seemed to be one concern the second concern was that once the individual enters the criminal justice system the playing field is uneven there is no way in which it will ever become a level playing field and that is why the constitution at that particular stage must confer strong rights on a person's uh, life and personal liberty especially when they come into contact with the justice system and finally is that if the person asserts a freedom in court does it create a pathway where a dialogue is created between two branches of government which has been sort of commenced by the individual to decide what is the correct position as far as the constitution is concerned which is precisely what km munshi had alluded to he had said that what it does is that creates a dialogue between the judiciary and the state in order to understand what is the correct position of the constitution and it really ennobles democracy because a citizen is allowed to question state action although it may be long after they have cast their vote and that's i think a third concern that the entire history of due process raised that democracy is not really harmed by the due process guarantee but it's actually one of the ways in which we can improve it by creating this pathway where dialogue is uh, sort of in, entered into between the judiciary and the state in order to understand how best the constitution can further individual rights right and then bringing it into current times what does that mean in a certain way for the ways in which politics across the globe is evolving into or rather descending into sort of modes of authoritarianism um is there is the is this a question that needs to be understood as merely a political one and then how, you know how does it sit with what See, we have in, my, in terms in, of our constitutional legacy in my view i think the last 8 uh, months or at least the last 6 months the pmla judgment has been an exception because there have been a very positive uh, sort of decisions on the question of due process and fundamental rights so as far as i see it i see it more in terms of many of the concerns that we had in 46 and 50 sort of now coming and playing out and it's again playing out in a way because there is no conclusive answer to these concerns these concerns can play out and ultimately what has to be seen is whether a balance can be achieved between individual rights and the state's interest where it is the individual rights which must prevail yeah. and these developments sort of indicate that the dialogue is still ongoing that there is still the possibility of using the constitution to engage in dialogue to further strengthen uh, fundamental rights as well as the right to life and liberty right indeed that's very well put thank you so much rohan for this uh, very illuminating uh, conversation it's been welcome uh, a pleasure thank you for having me yeah it's been a pleasure to hear about the book as much as reading it so uh, thank you so thank much you. for your time thank um, you Thanks also to the New Books Network uh, for providing us a platform to do this, uh, and to our production assistant Afra Asif uh, for her for her wonderful support uh, in making this podcast come alive. Uh, thank yeah. you, everybody. And Bye-bye. thanks, Rohan. Bye. Thank you.